Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, happy Super Bowl Sunday. More football fans in the first service. They were very excited. Um, well, we also are watching it tonight, so if you want to come by and hang out, we put a big projector up. It's pretty great. Uh, I just come for the dips, but anything with cheese in it is my thing. So if you want to bring a dip with cheese, I will be there. Uh, but otherwise, welcome to church on Sunday morning. My name is Trey. I get to be the pastor here, and uh, we are going through the book of John. So if you want to get in your Bibles, you can turn to John in the New Testament. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, it's kind of a special thing happening this Sunday specifically. We have 12 people who are not with us right now. They are in Guatemala, and they are serving uh, our Global Impact partner, Promised Land Ministries, who uh, the lead missionary there is Jorge Santizo. Me and Jorge uh, have been friends for over a decade, and uh, it's a really sweet ministry. We, a couple years ago, I had this idea of uh, creating, uh, we call it an apprenticeship cohort. It's basically like getting a master's with no certificate is what it feels like. You read two books a month. You're really accountable in all your scripture reading and your community. Uh, They go on trips. There's just a lot to it, and it's a year-long commitment. When I started, I did it with five guys, and then this last year, we did a girls and a guys cohort. So this is both of them together, Uh, and they start in May, and then they end in May. So this is towards the end of the year. They've been... Uh, on a retreat together. They've met every other week, done all this book stuff, and then this is kind of one of the culminating events. They serve in Guatemala for a week. So really excited for them. Uh, Our ministry to this ministry, Promised Land Ministries, is a lot of different aspects. One is we sponsor uh, their school. So we sponsor students. We pay, uh, it's like 30 bucks a month for a student to go to school there. And so I think our church has like 20 of those sponsors, something like that. And so they actually get to meet their kids, which is really cool. Um, and then we also build homes, do different ministries in the area. It's in a smaller city in Guatemala. So they're going to build some houses, do some ministry, and hopefully learn a lot. A lot of them have never been to Guatemala or out of the country. So it'll be really exciting for them. Uh, so I just want to take a moment to feature them to celebrate what we're doing in Guatemala. Uh, we also just give a ton of money to them as well on top of all of that. And they're going to build three homes this week and uh, hopefully enjoy uh, Guatemala and not get sick. So I'm going to pray for them. (laughs) Uh, Lord, thanks for um, just the fact that you are Lord of the world and not just Ohio or America, um, but you love deeply every human on this earth that's made in your image. And so as we get a chance to just remind ourselves of that with another language, another country, another culture, uh, would we just be humbled by the reality that you're so much bigger than we can imagine and so we just pray in this uh, week with these 12 people that have spent time and money to get to not only learn and grow, but to serve and to love this community and our ministry that we've been able to really partner with. We pray good fruit would come for, uh, from it, not just for building material things, Lord, but uh, loving them spiritually, sharing the gospel. And Lord, a lot of us, I just feel like, are so encouraged personally when we go there. So just pray for um, it just to be a sweet, rich time, for them to be healthy. And uh, for them to come back next week, Lord, and just share how you've been working in their lives and in the, those in uh, Sam Lucas Tolman. So we're graciously uh, grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I have one other announcement uh, that I want to share. So uh, one, or twi- one or two times a year, we do uh, a retreat, and we go to this wonderful cabin in Hocking Hills, and we try to talk about an issue or something uh, in our lives that is harder to talk about in 35 minutes on a stage on Sunday. 
Uh, so we've talked about sex and money. We've talked uh, about vocation and career and calling. And so this April, we're going to head down to Hawking Hills to talk about mental health. Uh, I have taught a little bit on it before, but every time I talk about it, I wish I had three hours. <clears throat> and so this time, I decided I'm going to bring my therapist with me, and we're going to talk about it. So uh, it's going to be really exciting. And if you want to know more about me in a very deep way, I'm sure my therapist would love to tell you and violate HIPAA. Um, but <clears throat> no, uh, but I'm really excited. He's great. And uh, we also have a spiritual director that's coming and dietitian, so it's going to be really cool. Um, also, it's just amazing to get away from the city and from distractions and just center ourselves in the Lord. Um, and so it's April night, the 5th, a Friday night to Saturday night. So it's basically like 30 hours or something like that, 24 hours. Um, and you can go on the QR code, scan to register. First 30, get to go. After that, we cut it off because the home can only fit so many, and we don't want everybody just sleeping on every area possible, uh, which we have done in the past. So make sure you sign up. If you've been before, this is just a little caveat. We're doing betting a little bit different, so make sure you go on there and read that um, so that you can figure out where you want to sleep and how that goes. So I would recommend it. I love it. It's one of my favorite things we do every year or twice a year. And uh, who doesn't want to be in a giant, wonderful cabin? Fun fact, we've also baptized someone every time we've went. So if you're wanting to get baptized, this is the place. You get baptized in an eight-foot swim spa. So there's not a better time in your life to get baptized. So shameless pitch for that. You can come see me after. We'll make that happen. Levi, our sound guy, he did it last time. He knows, right? Yeah, so great time. 10 out of 10, right? What would you recommend? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, enough housekeeping. Let's get into it. John 7, if you're there, I'll be reading in the NET. If you don't have a Bible, uh, Brennan in the back can give you one. You can steal it and take it home. We won't judge you. But we are in week 14 of John, chapter 7. We've been going through for several months. We will finish during Holy Week. Holy Week is from Palm Sunday to Easter this year. That's uh, every year, but that's what Holy Week is. And so we celebrate, like, each day we do different things, devotionals, events, things like that. And so uh, if you didn't realize... Uh, 40% of John is just that week. So when we get to the chapter, I think it's 12 or 13, it is that entire week is the rest of John. So we'll go through that together as a church community. to be really great. And so we're leading up to that. And if you were looking at an overview of John, John is writing first century uh, people, trying to compel them to understand and believe in Jesus. And he focuses on the number seven. He does seven signs or miracles and then seven discourses, which is a fancy word for teaching. And the, word, the number seven in this culture means perfection. Maturity, completeness, wholeness. So what he's doing is saying Jesus is whole in power and signs and teaching and wisdom. It's basically what John is getting at. And so we are in discourse number five, working our way through. And um, the last few weeks we've talked about some other discourses and things like that. Um, but the unique context we find ourselves in in John 7 is this chunk of John where Jesus, John is, is showing Jesus kind of reclaiming and fulfilling the Jewish culture and calendar in a deeper way. What I mean by that is on this, uh, this is stolen from the Bible Project, if you've watched their videos before, uh, there is essentially four blocks of festivals that the Jewish people would attend each year. They require a lot of time and effort and money. In fact, they were to give uh, three or four tithes in the Old Testament. One of them was just to save money for these festivals. And so they would go throughout them through the year. Each of them were basically a week long. And so in chapter 5, a couple weeks ago, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but that was most likely during the, the festival of Purim, or Lots, which reminds them of God's redemptive power in their lives. Uh, and then last few weeks, Jesus was doing signs up until the Feast of the Passover, which is the reminder of 
the lamb's blood right on the doorposts, and, and then God would pass over their family when they were in Egypt to finally get Pharaoh to release them out of slavery. And so he reminds them that I, I am the real bread and blood, right, um, of the Passover. And then today, in the next few weeks, we're going to center on what is called the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths. Or if you want to know Hebrew and be offensive, suck it. That's what it's called. So you say, I learned about suck it today. Uh, you could be accurate. S-U-K-K-O-T. I, I swear that's what they call it. Um, so the Feast of Suck It. <laughs> uh, and it, we're going to break into three weeks. So the first week is focused on water from the rock. This is, I did this very quick. You can tell how good of a drawer I am here. Um, and then week 15 centers around this character of Jesus through what we know as the story of the woman caught in adultery, which is a great story. I'll cover that next week. Um, that's probably a lot of people's favorite story in the Bible. It's a beautiful story of redemption. And then the next week, we'll talk about the second half, which is um, the pillar of fire and the cloud that, that they walked in the desert of. So he's basically saying, not only am I water from the rock, I'm also the light of the world. And so it kind of reminds them that he's not only what they have known, but de- deeper and greater. And that's Jesus's kind of agenda with these Jewish people. So hopefully that makes sense. Let's talk about suck it. Sound good for a little bit? Um, there is a lot going on in this festival, and it's really hard for us to, to sort of understand this type of life. Imagine, the best way to describe it is maybe like if you're a school teacher, you have rhythms, right? You have, uh, when I was in Arizona as a student pastor, we had year-long school, and so we had like a two-week fall break, a three-week spring break, six weeks for summer. So you had bigger breaks, and then Christmas break. So it's almost kind of like that. You work for a while, you get a week or two off. You work for a while, you get a week or two off. These four festivals were all throughout the year, and so you'd work. Most of them were agrarian, uh, grain farmers, olives, wine, right, like seasons. And so these festivals kind of honor the seasons. Well, the festival of the tabernacles or booths is found in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. God tells them to do this festival. It's, it's commanded. And so what they do is they take uh, from the 21st, um, or 15th to the 21st of the seventh month, which for us is basically like October. It's kind of the end of farming season. It was a feast of thanksgiving for what was produced, for the crops and celebrating what God has done through this year and the provision. But it was also a spiritual reminder, and it was supposed to be a joyful commemoration of the divine guidance granted to just the saving of the people through him bringing them out of Egypt, the the cloud during the day they followed, the pillar of fire at night, and then him providing for them food and water in the desert. And so it was a reminder of this, and they would sit in this, for seven days, they'd feast a lot on the first day, a lot on the last day, and then there was different activities they would go through each day. I kind of think about it like I grew up in a small town of like 10,000 people, and two days a year, uh, we have this thing called Community Days, and it's just this real eclectic, tons of tents in the park for two days, and there's just like everybody showing up from the woodworks, and we're all just kind of hanging out for two days, and um, there's tons of stuff to do, and so in this case, everybody, if you lived close enough, would travel to Jerusalem to participate, and if you didn't, it's like the Macy's Day Parade. You watch it on TV, but at the end of the day, you want to be there, right? It's not like New Year's Eve, where nobody wants to be on the streets of New York in the 10-degree weather, not being able to go to the bathroom, right? Like, I'm always like, praise God, I am in my house right now. Uh, But you want to be there, so they go to Jerusalem, they travel, and then this is what they would do, some different activities. Uh, They would sacrifice about 70 steers a day, which is a lot of steer uh, cattle. And um, they blow trumpets every day. They also did this ceremony that was called the outpouring of water, where they would draw water from the Pool of Siloam near Jerusalem, and they would dump it out, commemorating the refreshing spring that had come forth when Moses drew, drew water out of the rock. 
Uh, they would also illuminate this giant like fire candle thing in the temple that would remind them of the pillar of fire at night that they followed as God took them through the wilderness. Uh, and they would also have a torch parade, which is pretty cool. So, um, and above all, which is why this is called the Feast of the Booths, is that they would build these like makeshift shelters to remind themselves of their temporary residence in the wilderness. Um, and so if you are a practicing Jew today and you would participate in this festival, you would probably go out in your backyard and you'd make like this thing out of like a canvas and sticks. Some people are intense and they sleep in it for seven days. Most people don't. Um, but back then there were so many people coming that you would have to sleep in it because there was nowhere else to sleep. So you get the full experience of the Sucket Festival. Um, and yeah, so it's just really unique. I don't know if you've ever knew this, but I think it's pretty unique. And the reason why I'm telling you all of this detail is because it has an immense importance on what Jesus is going to do during this festival. So, John 7, if you're not there by now, I'm sorry, but we're going to go. So, John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled through Galilee. He stayed out of Judea because the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. Now, the feast of the tabernacles was near. And so, Jesus' brothers advised him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples may see your miracles that you are performing. For no one who seeks to make a reputation for himself does anything in secret. If you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. That's like so depressing, right? Go out there, but we don't believe in you. Uh, so Jesus replied, my time has not yet arrived, but you are ready at any opportunity. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I am testifying about it, uh, that its deeds are evil. You go up to the feast yourselves. I am not going to the feast because my time has not fully yet arrived. When he said this, he remained in Galilee. Remember, he's doing ministry up in Galilee. Largest ministry influence of his career, his three-year career, is at this point. Feeds 20,000 people, 5,000 men, 20,000 people. Flocks of everywhere. He just basically gutted the cities to go listen to him. He's in Galilee, and they're all, everyone is traveling down to Jerusalem for this feast, which means there's going to be a lot of talk about this Jesus guy. Some people saw him. Some people have heard about him. All the religious leaders residing in Jerusalem want to kill this guy. And so they're like, maybe he'll come and then we can kill him, right? So it's, just, it's a giant soap opera. I mean, it's, it's intense, like this whole scene. And he's like, no, I'll stay up here and I'm not going to go. So they go down. Classic Jesus, you know, like you're like, oh, he's not going to go. Okay. And then we read, uh, when his brothers had gone out to the feast, then Jesus himself also went up, uh, not openly, but in secret. And so the Jewish leaders were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And, and there was a grumbling about him among the crowd. Some people saying, oh, he's a good man. Other people saying, no, he's deceived the common people. However, no one spoke openly about him for the fear of the Jewish leaders. So classic Jesus, right? Like, here's your option, here's your option. He's like, neither, I'll go down the middle. You know, it's like, you just can't pin this guy, right? And he um, goes down to this festival. Now, there's a lot of different opinions, like what it means to go in secret. The most commonly understood one that makes the most sense is that he went to this feast in Jerusalem. A lot of the festivities were in the temple, like I said. Giant temple mount, holy of holy temple in the middle. Uh, it's big. So I could be screaming from one corner. You wouldn't hear me in the other corner. It's pretty big. So there's a lot of people there, a lot of commotion, right? And it's, it's argued that basically he goes in just a normal outfit like he would wear. And people who hadn't met Jesus yet would be assuming he'd be wearing something like higher up, meaning... He didn't roll up in a Rolls Royce with some bling on, right? He just came in with a hoodie and some joggers on, and they were surprised because, like, I didn't think that's who Jesus would be, right? He's a great rabbi. Why is he not wearing this sort of higher clothing? So that's, that's a good assumption is that he came like that. He wasn't like, I'm not Jesus, but he came like that, and he was able to start teaching because people were just like, who is this guy teaching? And so he just started to develop this crowd in the temple, 
And then this gets this reaction. This is kind of why we take that idea and that stance, is that in verse 25, it says, Then some of the residents of Jerusalem began to say, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet here he is speaking publicly that this man is the Christ. So they're, they're basically confused because some of them are like, wait, like, isn't this the guy? This is Jesus. But what's confusing is before that, he gets a bunch of words out. He starts to teach, and people have no idea who he is. So if we zoom back up to verse 14, where I was talking, this is what he says. It says, when the feast was halfway over, so that's three days in, basically, in the middle of the feast, he went to the temple courts and began to teach. Then the Jewish leaders were astonished. They said, how does this man know so much when he has never had any formal instruction? And so this is why we would say they don't recognize him. The Jewish leaders are like, who's this guy who's just teaching? Because a lot of them have never seen Jesus. They've just heard about him. Uh, he replies, my teaching is not from me, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do God's will, he will know about my teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from my own authority. The person who speaks on his own authority desires to receive honor for himself. The one who desires the honor of the one who sent him is a man of integrity, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Hasn't Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps it? Why do you want to kill me? So he's saying, why do you want to kill me? And no one even knows that. They're like, what do you mean? And that's why they're confused. And they say, you're possessed by a demon. Who is trying to kill you? Which is, if you're ever in a, a scuffle, just, you can just claim they're a demon. It works every time. You got a demon in you. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but they're confused. They're like, who is, it makes sense. They don't know, like, who is this guy? Why, why are we trying to kill you? And then he comes out with it. He's like, I'm the guy who did this healing you've all heard about. He says, yet here he is speaking publicly, saying, uh, they're saying nothing to him. Do the rulers really know that this man is the Christ? See, they're, they're confused. Oh, sorry, sorry, I skipped down, sorry. Verse 21, Jesus replied, I perform one miracle and you are all amazed. Sorry. I perform one miracle and you are all amazed. However, because Moses gave you the practice of circumcision, not that it came from Moses, but from his forefathers. You circumcise a male child on the Sabbath. But if, I, but if a male child is circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses is not broken, why are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to external appearance, but judge with proper judgment. And this is kind of confusing. What he's getting at is they don't really know he's Jesus yet. He's like, you're trying to kill me. And they're like, wait, what? And then they're realizing, oh, maybe he is Jesus and he calls them out. Basically, what had happened is in chapter 5 that I showed up here on the little graph, he healed a man on the Sabbath, right? And it was this huge controversy because they were like, you can't do good work on the Sabbath. If you're not allowed, you're not allowed to work, you're breaking the law. He's poking at them. He did then and he is now. And he's saying the Jewish rite of passage was when you were a Jewish male born, eight days later you had to get circumcised. Well, what happens if you get born, you're born and on the eighth day it's the Sabbath? they still circumcise the, the, the child. And so he's saying, you guys like, make up your own rules or you pick and choose which ones you want to follow or you pick the severity of what to do. And he's like, you're, you're being hypocrites. You're not being consistent. And so he is right. I mean, he's poking at them in a way that they can't really defend. And the common people are all listening like, yeah, I guess we do do that. And so then that leads to them saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? They realize, oh, if, if he's the one who did that sign, that's the Jesus guy. This is the guy they're trying to kill. Yet here he is speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Do the rulers really know that this man is the Christ? So the crowd is sort of like trying to figure all this out. And then they say, he says, but we know where this man comes from. They know Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, small podunk town. They know when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. And then Jesus, while teaching in the temple courts, cried out, you know both me and you know where I come from, and I have not come on my own initiative but the one who has sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I have come from him and he has sent me. So then they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. 
This is so confusing. This happens a few times where uh, he's, like, about to get taken, and he just, like, jiu-jitsu's out of it, and there's no, like, context. So we're like, was Jesus a Jedi master? We'll never know. All I know is no one took him. So either he was like, you can't catch me, and he ran away, or everybody went to do it, and they were like, never mind. I don't know. Who knows? We don't know. We can't speculate. All we know is it was not his time, right? So they didn't seize him. Uh, and many of the crowd believed him because he—he's—I mean—he's—he's sticking it to the man, right? Like he is the religious leaders. He's poking holes in their hypocrisy, and people are starting to realize, "Oh, you're right. Why am I so mad about you on the Sabbath? Because we circumcise uh, boys on the Sabbath, and we do all these other things. Like you're right. Why would we not want a good work of someone to be healed to, to happen?" And so they're starting to believe, but then they say, "Whenever the Christ comes." He won't perform more miraculous signs than this man, will he? And so they're starting to get confused because, like, he has all this power. We can't deny the fact that he's done all these things. And this is where it starts to get tense. The Pharisees hear the crowd murmuring these things about Jesus. Remember, we're in this temple. It's sort of like this weird pockets of people, and they start hearing. So the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they're like, go get this guy um, and bring him back. And so the officers come, and Jesus says, I will be with you. For only a little while longer, and then I'm, I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, you'll not find me. And where I'm going, you cannot come. And the Jewish leaders are so confused. They're like, where is he going? We can't find him. Is he going to go to the Jewish people in the Greek, among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Uh, what did he mean by saying, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am going, you cannot come. And then th- this is where the, they send the officers, and Jesus is basically starting to allude to being killed and eventually sending and leaving the people. And he's, he's drawing in this tension that the Pharisees are dealing with. They're trying to get rid of him. But for the, for the sake of Pharisees, I want to give the Pharisees one minute of, uh, of understanding here, a bit of empathy, if you will. I'm practicing my skill of empathy. Because we always like, oh, the Pharisees are the worst, blah, 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 right? Imagine you're a Pharisee. Imagine that you have this really intense boss called Rome. And you have to work for them. And if you make mistakes, they snap your kneecaps, Okay. And so your employees under you start saying some things that make your boss nervous. What are you going to do? You're going to be like, don't do that, right? Or fire the employee. Because even though you might agree, you're also like, I'm not the boss, and I don't want my knees snapped, right? So in, at this time, Rome has subjugated Jerusalem and the Israelite and the Jewish people, and they are puppeting them. They're basically like, hey, you give us taxes. We own you. We won't do anything if you don't cause any problems. But any militaristic vibes we get... We're going to come down hard. And, well, who knows? Destroy the temple if we want. Like, they, they were willing to go to that level, but there wasn't, they, they were playing this game of, like, you're not really violent. Most of what we understand about you, we'll keep an eye on, but it's not that big of a deal. Well, Jesus starts saying some things, and people are like, let's get out some knives and go stab some Roman people, right? Even though Jesus never says that, they're, like, using his teachings to leverage their own zealousness towards Rome. And so the Pharisees are weirdly in this political middle where they're kind of like, hey, let's preserve our Jewish people and not do that, Right? And then there's also pride wrapped up in it. And you know how politics is. You have to make decisions that you don't really want to make, you don't feel good about, you don't feel like there's a right option. Um, we probably don't have any like politicians in here, but you know how family politics, right, work politics, you kind of get stuck, you get pinned, you don't really want to make a decision, you don't want to stamp your name on it. So a little bit of grace for the Pharisees. They're in a tough spot, okay? I wouldn't want Rome to be my boss. Um, and, but what's happening is some of the Pharisees, we'll read in a little bit, are starting to like be like, hmm, maybe he is the Christ. But they don't want to say it publicly because if they do, it's this giant thing. And, and who knows? The Jewish people could just be dis- like the temple destroyed. And then you're liable to God for being the guy who helped destroy the temple, right? You don't want to be that. So 
We'll give them a pass just for a second, okay? Just, just to empathize with them. But then uh, this all happens. He's not seized. He, it's not his time yet. And he goes home or goes wherever he's at. Three days later, the last day of the festival, he comes back and he draws up more inflammatory statements for these religious leaders. It's funny because to me, it seems like he comes in the middle and his disciples or whoever's with him, like once they realize he's there, like, dude, like, you got to chill out. Like, you're causing a bunch of rocks. He's like, okay, fine. And he goes home. And then three days later, he stands back up again. And he's like, I have more to say. As a friend, I'd just be like, no, what are you doing, man? And that's basically what happens. On the last day, it says in verse 37, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and shouted out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Now, this statement in itself has a lot of meaning that I'll unpack, but the, the really cool potential understanding of this statement in its context is he's yelling this in a temple where they're literally pouring out water symbolically to remind people that this water is the idea of God continuing to quench your thirst daily as a reminder of what God has done for the Jewish people and will continue to do in your life. So imagine like you celebrating something and then someone else being like, yeah, I'm celebrating that, but like way better, right? You'd just be like, bro, who invited you to this party, you know? And that's exactly what he's doing. He stands up and he says this, uh, and he quotes scripture. Now, it's a little bit uh, up for debate of like what specific scripture. There's a couple in mind. I'm going to tie all three of them basically together. The first one is Psalm 78, 16, and it just says, He caused streams to flow from the rock and made the water flow like rivers. Now, at face value, you're like, oh, that makes sense. I want to read the part of the psalm to give you context because it's talking about God and the, and the Israelites and what they're celebrating. So it says, uh, they were not, um, then they will not be like their ancestors who were stubborn and rebellious generation. They did not keep their covenant with God and they refused to obey his law. They forgot what he had done, the amazing things he had shown them. He did amazing things in sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt. Remember, he draws them out with the plagues and draws them, parts the waters, right? It says, he divided the sea, he led them across it, he made the water stand in a heap. Then he led them with a cloud by day and with a light of fire all night long. They know this psalm, and they're practicing this with the flames, right? And he broke open rocks in the wilderness and gave them enough water to fill the depths of the sea. And in this verse right here, he caused streams to flow from the rock and made the water flow like rivers. Great, that's awesome. Amazing that we can remember that. But we promise something more than this. Then it says, yet they continued to sin against him, and they rebelled against the sovereign one in the desert. They willfully challenged God by asking for food to satisfy their appetite. They insulted God, saying, is God really able to give us food in the wilderness? Yes, he struck a rock, and water flowed out, streams gushing forth. But can he also give us food? Classic, right? Come on, unreal. When will he provide meat for his people? When the Lord heard this, he was furious. A fire broke out against Jacob. His anger flared up against Israel because they had not had faith in God and did not trust his ability to deliver them. He gave a command to the clouds above and opened the doors in the sky, and he rained manna for them to eat, and he gave them grain from heaven. Man ate the food uh, of the mighty ones. He sent them more than enough to eat. He brought the east wind through the sky, and by his strength led forth the south wind. He rained down meat on them like dust." I've been doing drywall in my basement. There's just dust everywhere. Imagine if it was just flakes of brisket. I'd be so pumped and also shocked. And they're literally like, here's our camp. God's like, all right, guys, just raining birds, like birds everywhere. You couldn't even see. And they're like, man, I think, I think, 
wow, you know, like, it's just ridiculous. Like, you read it, and you're like, this is comical. Hey, we want some food. Here's some flaky bread from the sky. Man, I really want some meat. Here's, like, thousands of birds, you know, and they're like, I still don't know if God's got us, right? I, I don't know. It's just, like, the, it's just an allegory of the human condition. We are pathetic in that we ask God for something, and the very next day we have the audacity to be like, yeah, but I kind of want more, right? I kind of want more. It's just, you read this, and you're like, this is just silly. They, uh, he, he brings the food down. Uh, he causes them, he rained down meat on them like dust, birds as numerous as the sand on the seashores. He caused them to fall right in the middle of their camp, all around their homes. They ate until they were stuffed. He gave them what they desired, yet they were not filled up. Food was still in their mouths when the anger of God flared up against them. He killed some of the youngest, uh, strongest of them. He brought the young men of Israel to their knees. Despite all this, they continued to sin. They did not trust him to do amazing things. So he caused them to die unsatisfied and filled with terror. And when he struck them down, they sought his favor. They turned back and longed for God. They remembered that God was their protector and that the sovereign Lord was their deliverer. But they deceived him with their words. They lied to him. They were not really committed to him. and They were unfaithful to his covenant. And it, it ends with this, that he is compassionate. He forgives sin. He does not destroy. He often holds back his anger. He does not stir up his fury. He remembered that they were made of flesh. So that's the first little vignette we get of, of this psalm that everybody would know, the songs, right, of the Jewish people, the psalms. Most are written by David, but some of them not. They have this song, right, and they're like, oh, okay, Old Testament, we see what's happening here. The main verse that scholars would argue is the most, most clearly alluded to is Zechariah 14.8, and it says this, Moreover, on that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem. This is the best, closest phrase to what Jesus says in the Greek and the Hebrew, living waters. Zechariah is a prophet, and he's prophesying about this specific day that will occur. This is a long time before Jesus' time. And the context for this is really fascinating. So that's the verse. Eight verses later, it explains more about this day. It says, Then all who survive from all the nations that come to attack Jerusalem will go up annually to worship the king, the Lord who rules over all, and to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. So this Zechariah is prophesying that living water will be brought out during this week that will be provided for all people uh, of all time in Jerusalem. So what is happening here? Jesus is saying, I got living water for all of you guys in Jerusalem at this time. I mean, so sometimes we just like, we just think Jesus is just kind of doing whatever he wants, just kind of going along, just like super flexible. He is like the most calculated person on earth. Like everything he does has the just deepest intention and it's remarkable. It's just remarkable. And it's, you read it and you're just like, you feel like he was like a machine. He just like knew what he needed to do when. No one else could really understand it. And you all put it together and you're just like, whoa. And the last, uh, the last verse that people would have remembered, Isaiah, this really great prophet, in, verse 50, in chapter 58, he says, The Lord will continually lead you. He will feed you even in parched regions. He will give you renewed strength. And you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring that continually produces water. Now, this is, this is what is really important about this teaching, because this is discourse number five. You know, I titled it The Life-Giving Spirit, and he talks about this idea of the Spirit. And he uses this phrase, living water, right? Here's the thing. Nobody knows what this means because the Holy Spirit, in our, in our words, hasn't been given yet, right? Like, it happens later when he ascends, the book of Acts, the Spirit comes, tongues, all this stuff, right? So they're not really, like, understanding this, but John knows that. So he literally writes, 
a little verse after this in quotes, in, uh, in parentheses, and he says in verse 39, now he said this about the Spirit, whom he, those who believed in him were going to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not been yet glorified. What he's basically saying, glorified is um, killed and, and uh, dying for our sins and resurrected, right? That's the glorification. And he's saying, you know, after that, the Spirit will come. So these people don't know this yet. But here's the thing. Jesus comes into a culture of one true God, Yahweh, which you know is God the Father. And he says, I am God, basically. And they're like, nope, can't do that, right? Can't be two gods, not allowed. We got to kill you. And then he also says, there's also the Spirit. And you're like, third God? Come on now, dude. We didn't, we, didn't, we stopped at two. And this is where we have our modern understanding of the Trinity. Don't have time to get in that, but the Holy Spirit, Jesus' Spirit, sometimes known as the Holy Ghost, if we're feeling spooky, right? It is the third person in the Trinity. And Jesus is starting to sort of unearth this reality that when I leave, I will leave you something greater, my Spirit, in you. And in a very Western, post-Enlightenment, modern world, we're like, yeah, okay, right? Like, maybe... I get in a car accident and like this spirit like saves me from dying. Like, but we don't think about I walk into a room and the spirit of God is is within me and in me and is informing and helping and, and convicting and all this stuff, right? But that's the truth of what we believe. When you believe and you place your faith in Jesus, you repent of your sin, you come to him, you receive his spirit in your soul. I talked about soul last week. You can go listen to it, it's a very long understanding of soul, but Nefesh, your whole self. The spirit is within your whole self. And most of us live like that's true in that it's helping us, but not that it is, I don't know if you describe your soul as, as just an overflow of a well. You're like, nah, mine has like a little bit at the bottom, but it's in no way gushing out like a, like a flowing river. And Jesus is saying, hey, you got some water from a rock and you thirsted again and again and again. And they're pouring out this water on the Temple Mount being like, guys, remember when God made water from a rock in the desert, Remember this. God will provide. And then Jesus stands up, and he's like, any of you guys thirsty? I've got living water. And he's already taught this. He taught this to a woman in John 4. He talked about the bread of life. Eat me, right, my flesh and my blood. And they're like, no way, I'm out. And he says to everyone, again, tons of Pharisees here who have already want to kill him, tons of people who have already heard his teaching and traveled down to Jerusalem. They're like, I don't know about this guy. And he says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, he can come to and believe in me. And, and you'll be a living water, a flowing stream for not just yourself, but for everyone around you. And I mean, that's just the truth. If you are a terrible spouse and you surrender to Jesus and you start to become more like Jesus because of the Spirit's working in your heart, right? You're, you will, your marriage will be better. Your family will be better. The people around you will be better. Your ability for the Spirit to work in your heart is not just for you. It's for everyone around you. That's the beauty about a church. Church is really messy, lots of different opinions, people, styles, all this stuff. But you put it all together, and if you can unify everyone, you have this massive, rushing river that people cannot avoid. And instead of, like, jumping over a little three-foot creek, they're like, this is a massive river. I just got to get in, and I think I kind of like it. <laughs> That's how church work, should work. Right? Instead, we're like fracturing and all these different little like, oh, no, my creek's the best, and mine's right, and yours, you know, it's, it's like, no, when you unify and you all believe this to be true, because this is the truth, it's just whether or not we actually believe it to be true when we walk into a room or we live our lives, is that we are not just having a spirit that is helping us, but it is creating this deep, rich life and freedom and restoration that, that bleeds in and infects other people's lives.
And it's just, like, it's so cool that he's teaching this to people who don't really get it now, but we look back and we're like, man, that was what they needed for decades, for centuries. Because this law, the, the Pharisees, the, like, rigidity around it was sucking out the beautiful life that was supposed to be given from God's heart to his people. And so as we wrap up here towards the end, this causes some tension, believe it or not. When he says this, he stands up again. And they're like, are you kidding me? You know, on the last day, come drink for me, right? Uh, when they heard these words, some of the crowd began to say, this is really the prophet. This is the Christ. Some people are like, I think I want this. We can't deny he's, you know, he's, he's, he's right. Others say, no, the Christ does not come from Galilee, does he? Don't the scriptures say the Christ is a descendant of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a division in the crowd because of Jesus, and some of them were wanting to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Again, like, like twice, come on. This time, though, we get an excuse. Then the officers returned to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him back with you? And they reply, no one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, you haven't been deceived too, have you? Yes, they have. None of the rulers or Pharisees have believed in him, have they? They're like, shoot, not only you guys didn't do your job, do we have other people in our crew that are like over here like kissing Jesus' feet? Like we're in trouble. If you notice, too, there's like a separation, right? Like they don't really want to get involved because they know they're going to get wrecked. So they're like, let's just get the cops in here and take them out, and then we'll deal with them privately. So they don't even want to go see him. They're like, are there other, other us that are there that are just like sucked into this? And, uh, and they, they said, none of the rulers or Pharisees have believed in him, have they? But this rabble who do not know the law are accursed. They're like blaming all the people. They're like, they don't get it. They're stupid. They're small-minded. They don't, they don't understand the prophecies. And then Nicodemus comes back into the scene, and this is just a beautiful ending. It'll tie everything up, because right now you're like, I have no idea what's going on with the last 30 minutes. Nicodemus was in John 3. He comes to Jesus at night, and he asks him a bunch of questions. Nicodemus is curious. Nicodemus is like, I think that you might be the Messiah, but I, need, I have some questions. And he asks these questions, and Jesus is, is kind of cold with him because he's, he's picking at him. And we, Nicodemus leaves, and we don't really know what happens. It's just sort of like, great, maybe Nicodemus is believing, but it like, you know, it, there, he's in this culture where he can't really be honest. And he says this, he says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of the rulers, said, our law doesn't condemn a man unless it first hears from him and learns what he is doing. Does it? They replied, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate carefully and you will see that no prophet comes from Galilee. They're basically saying, like, you're not one of them too, because Jesus was Galilee and he had a funny accent. Like, they're like, oh, you also like him? But what, what, what Nicodemus is ultimately saying, and this is the sum of the whole thing, is just simply, have you met him? Have you been around Jesus? Nicodemus has, and I think it's clear that it's, it's messing him up inside. Because he's like, you haven't learned, you haven't sat under him and you haven't seen what he's done you're just only seeing it from a hate-filled, I want this to go wrong, I want him to go away perspective. And so no matter what he does, you're going to hate, you're going to fight, you're going to resist. And so what they're fighting about is, see to it, Nicodemus, who has the you know, scriptures memorized, no prophet like this will come from Galilee, which is true. However, we know in the Christmas story that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he fled Bethlehem because Herod ordered every two-year-old and under or three-year-old to be murdered, so they left, fled to Egypt, and then they came back, and then they settled in Nazareth. And so Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and his, so they were, he was Jesus, you know, son of Joseph, Nazareth. And everyone knew that. 
So they're like, there's no way. But if you notice, Jesus doesn't like argue. He says, you know where I come from. I come from above. They're like, whoa, no, that's not where you come from. You come from Nazareth, right? He's not going to play this argument like, actually, I'm from Bethlehem. You see in the scriptures, I'm fulfilling the scriptures, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't play that game because it doesn't matter. They're just always going to find something wrong that they don't like or that they don't, because their agenda is not to humble themselves. Their agenda is not to sit at the feet of Jesus and be changed by him. And many of us resist this in different areas of our lives or have been resisting in our entire life. We are terrified of when we sit at Jesus' feet, what it will do to us. And we're worried about the change in that moment as opposed to the future of what it will become. One of the funniest questions I've ever been asked, I was at a pastor's retreat, and one of the pastors asked, hey, if you weren't a Christian right now, like, what, what sin would you just like, go for? What would you partake in? Like, what? It's like, what a weird question, man. And I thought about it a lot. We all thought about it. And, you know, maybe you're like, oh, I don't know. Like, I'd be more greedy or, like, I'd lie more or be dishonest. Or, I don't know. Whatever, right? I'd, and the root of the question was, was kind of getting at, like, what's the thing you're just, like, really wrestling with? You kind of want to do, right? You kind of want to do and be, like, not feel bad about it, right? But it made me think about the opposite question, which is, like, if you met Jesus and you play that out, what would your life look like? If I surrendered to Jesus, if I met him, if I, I don't even want to say gave him a chance because that makes it sound like he's like desperate. But if I, if I actually encountered Jesus and I actually lived out his way, what would happen in my life? I think it'd be great. I would argue it would be great. I'm not saying it wouldn't be hard. I'm not saying it wouldn't cause tension. I'm not saying that it wouldn't require more of you. But I I promise you that what Jesus says here, if you believe this to be true, it is a living water that flows up like anything else, like nothing else that can satisfy, then that's what you get. And Nicodemus had spent just enough time to be like, I have met him, and it's something. And so for many of us, as as we wrap up, I'll invite Nick up, have we met him? Are we resisting meeting him? Are we resisting being honest? And this isn't to like belittle your issues. Like you might have struggles. You might have questions that you want answers to. You might have been dealt a really nasty church hand, you know, um, just rough stuff in the church happening to you. And so you just have this jaded perspective. But I promise you that when you meet Jesus, it's just, it will not fail. And the question is, you know, are you going to get caught up on what you think is a big deal? And... Are you going to let that define your trajectory of what you think of Jesus? So I have three questions as we wrap up for reflection. First is, have you assumed of Jesus any area, what he teaches or stands for? And this could be a holistic understanding of Jesus or just things that maybe you still are feeling like, man, I, this is starting to shift what I thought or what I grew up with, and I don't know how I feel about it, and I'm, I've realized I've assumed things. Number two, how would you respond if you were wrong and you had to humble yourself into Jesus' truth? like I was talking about earlier with the sin question, just, just playing that out in your mind. Let's just say you are wrong. Let's just say you don't know everything. Let's just say that the way you're trying to fix your life is not working. If you were to humble yourself into Jesus' truth, what would your life look like? Just play it out. I think you'd be surprised. Number three and last, do you have the life-giving spirit in you? Now, for us, if we believe in Jesus, we know this is a part of our lives, though we often forget sometimes. We don't walk into a room being like, I'm full of living water, you know? You're not like just bulletproof. You got fears, you got anxieties. 
But do you have that? Do you want it? Jesus says, all who are thirsty, come, and you will find this beautiful living water that will spring up. So as we have uh, four different things we offer every week for a little space of formation, we have the reflection questions. We also have people in the back who would love to pray for you about anything and everything. We also have a box in the back we call the bringing box, and that is uh, for our um, giving back to the Lord. We don't believe that we own anything, so we call it bringing because we're bringing it back to God through uh, worship, obedience, trust, sometimes all those, sometimes some of them. We struggle as humans to always have an honest heart about giving and being generous, but you can do that as well uh, or give online. A lot of people do that. Uh, And the last thing is we have the bread and cup in the front and the back, gluten-free, grape juice, and it is a symbolic reminder of this sacrifice, of this living water that we're able to partake in. And we do it every week because it reminds us that daily Jesus is this living water, that we are not just to keep this to ourselves, but it is to flow way outside of ourselves and impact others and to remind ourselves that something had to die in order for us to live. And so as it's symbolic, for those who believe in Jesus, you can partake in that at any point on your own. And then we will close in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.